Hello and welcome to Jay Hutch Talks Too Much. Tonight I'm talking about the new Beatles documentary, The Beatles Get Back, which is a three-part episodic series um, that's actually quite a very long series. It, the, the first I had ever heard of this movie was that it was originally going to be a reimagining, a re-edit of the Beatles' final movie from 1970, um, Let It Be, which is essentially what it is. But it was originally announced as a theatrical release. It was going to come out sometime in 2020 um, for the 50th anniversary of that movie. Um, and it was just going to be a two-hour documentary film that was made up of the um, extra pieces that were never used in the original film. And as time went on, obviously the um, pandemic pushed that ahead. So eventually we found out, okay, well, it's not going to come out now in the summer of 2020. It's going to be pushed to another time. Uh, at this point, I'm a bit vague on recalling all of the details around the movie because it changed a lot over time. Um, eventually it came out that the movie was no longer going to be a theatrical release, but it was going to be going up on Disney Plus, and then it was it's no longer a movie. It's going to be a three-episode three series, with each episode being two hours, um, so it would come to six hours in total. And it's even beyond that now. It's uh, Now that it has gone up, it went up um, uh, almost uh, a week ago now. So it went up, the first episode went up on Thursday, the second one on Friday, and the next one on Saturday. Um, the first one is uh, 157 minutes long. The second one is almost three hours. It's 173 minutes long. And the third one is 138 minutes long. So uh, even then it went beyond its um, six hour uh, range. And I had only found out about that um, just shortly before it came out. So that was a kind of nice surprise. But this has gone through so many different permutations uh, over the last couple of years. And even when uh, it was just going to be a two-hour theatrical release, it was something that I was really excited about. Um, because for one, uh, Peter Jackson uh, is uh, obviously very famous for his uh, Lord of the Rings films, um, which I will admit I have not seen any of those movies. So I, I apologize to the Lord of the Rings film fans in advance that I haven't seen those movies. I, I did see in the last year his uh, World War One documentary, They Shall Not Grow Old, where he, uh, which mostly consists of footage from that time period, but cleaned up and played at a speed where it essentially looks like it could have been filmed yesterday. Uh, if that's a movie that you haven't seen, I do highly encourage you to, to see it. Now, I hadn't seen it when this announcement was first made, but I knew about the movie and I knew that it was um, rather astonishingly made um, in terms of how Peter Jackson um, cleaned up the original footage and, and how he pieced it together. So when I first learned about the movie, I was I was pretty excited. I'm, I'm just generally excited usually to hear that there's some kind of new Beatles um, uh, thing that's, that's coming out. So I was excited about it then. 
Um, and then as all the changes happened, um, people would say to me, uh, are you upset that it's no longer going to be something that you could see in the theaters? And I would say no, because if it was something that you could see in the theaters, it would never be this, what at the time I thought was this kind of six hour long epic. So it became something even more than I had initially thought it was going to be. And it continued to get bigger and bigger and bigger, really up until the week that it um, it uh, eventually came out. So this has been a pretty exciting thing um, to follow all along. Um, I might, I don't know what I'm going to do tonight in terms of how long this is going to be. I actually do not have anything really extensively planned out. I've got these notes here, um, but they're not really all that extensive. But I do have a lot of thoughts on this movie uh, on these three episodes. So um, I apologize in advance if it seems a little bit incoherent because, you know, all I've really wanted to do over the last week is talk about this movie. I had uh, friends over to watch it. We had plans to watch it on Friday night. So by that point, the first one had come out and the second one had come out. And I just couldn't stop myself from watching it before they came over to to watch it with me. So by the time they came over, we were watching the first one together because they hadn't seen it. But I had already watched the first one and the second one, I think, by that point. And, and I hadn't watched the, the third one yet because it was due to come out the next day. Uh, I've watched uh, a lot of it with my with my partner, who's very patiently and graciously watched it with me. And uh, I have have I watched it uh, with anybody else? No, I haven't watched it with anybody else. That's 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 been it. But certainly I have I have. Uh, been very excited to to talk about the movie. Now, if you haven't seen it, there are probably going to be some things in it that I spoil, although the the series is not really a, you know, a narrative per se, although, you know, Peter Jackson does kind of um he does kind of uh, edit it in a way that uh, one could see a kind of a, a loose narrative thread kind of running through it, uh, particularly in terms of when he chooses to end the various um, uh, parts. Um, so, you know, I will kind of reveal some of the big things that happened, I think, in this conversation. I'm not I'm not sure, <laughs> but um, uh, whether or not you would even think of those things as, as necessarily big. But, you know, I, do, I, I don't think... Um, I'm necessarily going to really uh, uh, spoil it for you. Um, but the, before I really go into uh, the uh, movie itself, I do want to just talk a little bit about the movie that came before this one, the one, the original version of this, the the uh, the the um, Ur text, uh, Let It Be, which came out in, in 1970. Now, Let It Be is a movie that I was familiar with since I was a kid. Uh, a cousin of mine generously dubbed it onto a, um, a VHS tape along with two other Beatles-related movies, Let It Be, A Hard Day's Night, and of course, the famous Give My Regards to Broad Street, the Paul McCartney solo film effort from the 1980s. Um, they were all on the same tape, and I I think I might have that tape somewhere still to this day, uh, but nothing to watch it on. But I still I still have it somewhere. 
So I have seen Let It Be um, quite often. Um, and as a kid, uh, I who was infatuated with the Beatles, and I started listening to them sort of, I think, obsessively as far back as I can remember. So at least as far back as I was maybe five years old, um, I was I was listening to them, maybe, maybe even further back than that. Those who were there at the time, 1984, 1985, could... Uh, confirm whether or not that that's the case. But I think it at least goes back uh, that far. So, you know, I, I thought Let It Be was great. I kind of thought it was just like any other movie. And then eventually over time, you learn that this movie is sort of thought of, was sort of thought of as the kind of the Beatles breaking up movie. And the fact of the matter is, is that's a sort of a, a myth about the, the Let It Be movie. And I, I think that there's a couple of reasons why that that is. But I think the overriding reason why the Let It Be movie from 1970 was considered to be this, this documentary of the Beatles breaking up uh, was, uh, was the release date of the actual film. So I do want to put that original film into context. I wrote a, a couple of uh, dates down here. So the Let It Be movie comes out May 20th, 1970. Actually, I think there's two different release dates. Within a week of each other, the UK releases it and then the US releases it. But let's say May, May 20th, 1970, Let It Be comes out, um, the movie. Now, um, this is 12 days after the album Let It Be comes out. Um, that came out May 8th, 1970. Now, a month before that, April 10th, um, Paul McCartney is releasing his first solo album, which is called McCartney. So this is an album, the album, uh, it's a very loose kind of album. There's a lot of instrumental tracks on it. Um, he's recording this album at home. So it has a kind of recorded at home feel and sound to it. Um, but quite famously, maybe I'm amazed is on that album. So if you've, uh, you're familiar with that song, it's, it's on, it's on that album. That album comes out on April 10th, and, and McCartney releases it along with this sort of press release, which he gives out to the media, I think, the day before. Uh, and uh, the, the press release is a sort of a, an, an interview. Uh, I, I believe McCartney asks somebody at Apple to come up with a bunch of questions, and, and he will answer them. And, you know, the answers that he gives are not him definitively saying the Beatles have broken up. But they very much imply that. And I think they one of the questions is something like, you know, when when do you see yourself working with the Beatles uh, again? And he says, I, I don't really see myself working with them in the near future or something like that. So there's a, a headline in the Daily Mirror uh, on April 10th, Paul quits the Beatles. And this is when the public at large believes that the Beatles have broken up. Now, in actual fact, the Beatles, for the most part, had been ostensibly broken up since late September 1969, when um, they have a meeting, the Beatles have a meeting. George is not at that meeting, but John Lennon is at the meeting. Paul McCartney's at the meeting. Ringo Starr is at the meeting. Alan Klein's at the meeting. They're there to, Yoko Ono is at the meeting. They're there to, um, um, to uh, sign a new contract, I think. And uh, John announces at this meeting that he's going to leave the group. He says he wants a divorce from the group, which oddly enough, 
or interestingly enough, that term divorce comes up again in the um, in the Peter Jackson documentary where George, in fact, says maybe we should get a divorce. And Paul, John's not really part of it. Well, he is. He's there. He's sitting there. And Paul says, that's what I said at our last meeting. And John said, well, who will get the children? And Paul says, Dick James, who is the man who owns the Northern Northern Songs, which is the Lennon and McCartney, most of Lennon and McCartney songs. So anyway, that they have that conversation in the um, in the documentary it's as a kind of a, a one off at, at one point. Um, so, you know, but September 20th, 1969 is generally considered to be that that sort of decisive moment when the when the Beatles break up, when John said, I, I'm leaving the group. Um, and at that point, they the uh, the other Beatles, particularly Paul and particularly Alan Klein, try to convince John to not make a public statement at that point. And he doesn't. Um, and so for months and months and months and months, they're kind of uh, the Beatles are of the opinion that, you know, they're 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 they've broken up, but we're not actually saying anything now. Um, there's also even even during that period. um are the Beatles entirely broken up? Well, you know, uh, Paul was of the belief of that time that maybe this was just, you know, this was a rash decision that John would make, that John had made. And pretty soon he's going to change his mind and he's going to come back. And when he decide, makes that decision, we're, the three of us are essentially going to be ready to, to get back together. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, there is certainly reason to believe that that, that, could have actually happened. I mean, John was fam famously fickle. You know, he would change his mind about things all the time. There was that joke in an interview from the 70s uh, with uh, an interviewer was interviewing George Harrison. And one of the things that he says in the interview to George is he says, um, you know, I have a saying, if you don't like what John Lennon is saying, stick around for a few minutes and he'll say the opposite or something along those lines. And, and it makes George laugh because... Yeah, I mean, that is kind of in many ways how, how John did operate. He was a very instinctive person and personality. Uh, and I think when you're an instinctive, when you have that instinctive personality and you just say the thing that's in your head right now, it's not necessarily going to be something that's fully formed. And therefore, you know, 10 minutes later, you can come out saying the opposite. So I think that there was a feeling even after that September 20th date that quite possibly they would have gotten back together. And in fact, the three, Paul, George, and Ringo, do get together uh, early in 1970, I think maybe in January, to do some recording overdubs for the Let It Be album because they had started working on that in January of 1969. And they, they come back a year later to try and, and uh, finish it up. And then, you know, even after McCartney makes this announcement in April, which people kind of widely consider to be the, the end of the Beatles, even after that, um, John, George, and Ringo then at that point kind of get together and they work together. And I think they're working on a song called Early 1970, which is a Ringo song, a really great Ringo song, which is about the Beatles, incidentally. Um, and he's in that song. And, they, and I think they they tried to get Paul to come to the, the studio to record with them. Now, part of that was, I think, a way to sort of try to avoid what they all knew was coming, which was Paul was going to sue the uh, other three Beatles to get out of that partnership by the end of 1970. And as a way to try to counter that or as to bring an argument to the court when Paul did that, 
they were going to try and bring, they were going to say, well, you know what? Paul's been recording with us, so he may want to sue us to dissolve the, the, the band, but he's still playing with us at the same time. Well, Paul didn't actually come to the studio because I think he knew what was coming up. And um, and so that never actually happened. But, you know, really the, the idea of the, the Beatles sort of firmly sort of breaking up is 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 very tenuous i think all the way through even 1970 but as far as the public is concerned the beatles have broken up by april 10th and then a month later the let it be album comes out which everybody kind of believes is the last beatles album this was the last thing they recorded together this is the last thing they put out and then a week after that is the movie that comes out, which is the movie about the making of the Let It Be album. So it's like, okay, this is the this is the breakup movie. This is what we're witnessing here is them breaking up. Now the reality of the situation was actually quite different. As I said, that moment where John says, I want a divorce from the Beatles, that happens in September of 1969. The events that we're witnessing in this Get Back documentary and in the Let It Be movie take place in January of 1969, nine months before those events happen. They not only record all of the Let It, most of the Let It Be stuff, but they also record the Abbey Road stuff after that. So the idea that this was a breakup album is in fact not actually true it is true and they talk about this in the three-part series that there's not on as good a term as they with each other as they had been at their height um and they they talk about that john will say you know i i feel bad that i'm not putting in the kind of effort that i i necessarily used to the effort into us being a team um so there, there is certainly that. They're, they're not the same as they had once been in terms of their general togetherness. But they were still, and, and the three-part series really bears this out, they were still very much a team. And generally speaking, overwhelmingly, they actually, in fact, got along quite well. So, you know, the fact of the matter is the original Let It Be movie um, was I think largely assumed to be a breakup movie because it came out amidst a very, very public story uh, about the Beatles breaking up. And so that was just the assumption. And so everybody kind of focused in on the negative aspects on, on the movie. But I do want to say, you know, there were a lot of, in the original 1970 movie, there are a lot of bright spots in that film. There's John and Paul singing... Um, two of us in a very sort of comical way. There is um, Ringo working out Octopus's Garden with George uh, in this kind of air of, of, of levity and, and lightness. Um, there is uh, Paul and Ringo sort of playing together at the piano. Um, there's the day in the, the let, original Let It Be film where Paul brings in um, uh, Linda's daughter, Heather, just a young girl at the time. And she has a lot of fun with the guys. They have this rock and roll jam. There's the rooftop concert. All of that is in the original film. Um, so there's a lot of light moments in that original movie as well. And the Peter Jackson movie has all those moments in them as well. And in fact, I think one could argue that it potentially has greater moments of tension between them uh, or a, lar a larger number of moments where there's tension between them. So there's the famous episode from the original movie, which many people kind of took to be like, 
like this is their breakup movie. This is kind of a prime example of why they broke up, where Paul and George have this back and forth, where George famously says to Paul, who's trying to give George some advice on how to play two of us, uh, which obviously gets George upset. And George eventually says, look, I'll play whatever you want me to play, or I won't play at all. Whatever it is that will please you, I'll do that. And, uh, you know, that that moment is in the original film. It's in this Peter Jackson film. But an interesting thing that we find out in this Peter Jackson film is is that's not even the catalyst for George walking out of the uh, get back sessions, which he does do. Um, so part one of the get back sessions ends with George saying, I'm leaving the band and he leaves the band. Uh, and there's a, a very interesting sort of 10, 15 minutes that follows that where it's they're they're still in the studio kind of reeling from George walking out of the session. Um, that is the, the thing, the catalyst, I think, that makes George leave in that uh in that moment is not portrayed in the original let it be film so there's there's that kind of tension uh that's at work in the new film and i'll talk a little bit why i think he leaves uh a, a little bit later there's that there's that tension that's in the film um there's this interesting moment that i actually have not seen many people talk about when they've been talking about this film where they talk about um going to india uh they had gone to india uh uh, about, I don't know, nine or 10 months earlier, right before the recording of the White Album. Um, and bits of this are in the original Let It Be movie as well, where Paul talks about how he talks about how John was there. There's, he's looking at video uh, that he took, film that he took when he was there in India. He said, I was watching this fel these films last night that I took. And, um, he, and he's talking to John and he says, you know, I, the the you were walking around with Maharishi and the thing that I kind of took away from it, he says, is it just wasn't you. You were just not acting as yourself. And, and then George, you can tell that George is irked by this because the reason why they're largely in India in 1968 is because of his doing, you know, because he has um, developed these spiritual interests and he wants to go to see the Maharishi and he wants to go to India and, you know, the Beatles end up going along with them. And then the thing that's not in the original Let It Be film, that's in the Peter Jackson film is George says to Paul, he says, well, are you sorry that you went? And Paul says, no, I'm not sorry that I went. And he says, you know, it's just funny that we weren't our ourselves. And George, I, George says, you know, that's a laugh that we weren't ourselves. He's like, we went there to be ourselves. And he's like, we're, we're not even ourselves right now, he says. Um, so, you know, you can tell that he's bothered by this because whereas it is true that um, John and Paul and Ringo become very disenchanted with the Maharishi, George doesn't. And in fact, if you read the the uh, Beatles anthology book, and it's, I will admit, I haven't read it since I did my undergrad in university, but uh, I remember reading, because I thought they all had become disenchanted with the Maharishi and left. George didn't really. He was still pretty much defending him uh, uh, in the 1990s when they when they did the anthology. So to, I think when George is sitting there in the studio, and this is after you know they they have patched a lot of things up and they're getting along quite well. But when George is sitting there in the studio, and he hears Paul, you know, basically saying, you know, it was ridiculous when we were there. We weren't being ourselves. We were just sort of sitting at the feet of the master, and that's not who we are. You know, I think I think George is 
probably he's quite right to take that personally. Now, it could have gone far beyond what it ended up being. And by that point, I think George and Paul are being quite careful not to rub each other the wrong way. But I think many times George just can't just can't help himself. And Paul just can't help himself being Paul either. You know, he's just going to say whatever is on his mind, not really thinking about whether or not it's going to rub people the wrong way or not. Anyway, that's another moment of tension that, that Peter Jackson includes. So there are larger moments of tension. Now, nevertheless, you know, I, I walk, I watched the last time I watched the letter B film, the original letter B film from 1970 was during my undergrad. I think I talked about it in our, podcast that uh, I did with my friend Scott and Matt uh, when we did we talked about a hard day's night and I I think I mentioned you know I showed Matt um, this copy that I had on that famous VHS tape that I just mentioned a while back of let it be and how it was just a really dull kind of experience and I think that the movie not only is tainted by the fact of when it came out the context of the, the Beatles breaking up but I do think it, that original film is really poorly put together and edited. And also just that the film itself looked really bad. And so you come away from that original 1970 movie. Maybe it looked really bad because it was dubbed, you know, in, in 1985 and I was watching it in, you know, 2001 or whenever. But, um, but you know, I, it, it looked bad the whole the whole film just seemed to lag and never be all that interesting and the uh, truth of the matter is in this peter jackson film you know you could watch it and you could be watching it for half an hour 40 minutes an hour and say to yourself nothing really has happened uh, in this in this time period i will say that like for this movie you know if you're expecting a kind of like a really sort of rip rollicking ride for seven hours it's it's not entirely that right there are moments where they're kind of sitting around and waiting and kind of waiting for the the apple studios to be built up around them so that they can finally start recording things and there are a lot of sort of downtime moments that are captured in this film and yet at the same time there's something much more exciting and thrilling about the Peter Jackson film than anything that ever that we ever saw in the original uh, Let It Be film. And I'm trying to think about why that is. And I think I think partly that, you know, it's it's maybe it's easy to say this in retrospect, but I think that the only way that this movie would have ever made sense ever uh, would have been for it to be this lengthy six, seven hour long story, because then you get a lot of things in their proper context. So when you see that fight between George and Paul in the original movie, you know, it's it becomes a really big part of it. It's overriding and it's dominating. But in the Peter Jackson film, it just becomes kind of part of this you know, overall kind of thing. And, and by the end of that day, they seem to be on pretty good terms again. And by the next day, the next morning, it's like it never even happened. Um, so, I mean, obviously, George is still upset enough a few days later to to leave the band. So there's a lot of stuff that's going on. But I, I think you, you get these kind of negative things, and you get these lots of moments of levity, because I think what comes across most in this 
in this three-part series is how is just the overall camaraderie between the band at this point. They liked to laugh, they liked to joke, they liked to jam, they liked to do all these sorts of things, right? Um, I, I, I've heard some people say, you know, I don't think we're ever going to get any sort of insight into who the Beatles are on the basis of these these films because they're inevitably, um, to borrow George's terms, not being themselves when they're on camera. They're hamming it up inevitably for the camera. But my feeling of it is, is that who they were, especially John and Paul, were people who would ham it up in front of the camera. In other words, we're maybe getting more insight into who they were as people than, than uh, if you didn't see them doing that kind of thing, right? Um, I think that just John and Paul are naturally performative people, right? And I may have said this in the earlier video, so if I did, forgive the repetition, but I think that it bears a little bit of repeating that, you know, I think one of the reasons why the Beatles are the most famous rock and roll band of all time is the fact that you have two people in that band who really crave attention, right? John Lennon and Paul McCartney both really crave attention, but they crave it in different ways. You know, Paul wants to get attention for doing good things. You know, he wants people to tell him, you're amazing, you're great, you're brilliant. That thing that you did there, that was incredible. You know, he's like, look what I can show you, look what I can do, right? John has that too. He is he he does want that kind of attention, but he also doesn't mind getting negative attention too, like the kind of negative reinforcement thing, right? So, you know, it's like like um like a child, you know, who doesn't get enough attention as a child and acts out um in order to get that attention that they so crave and that they've been missing all of their life you know, that's John as well. You know, that's why he says controversial things and does controversial things and why he takes um, uh, riskier stances than the other Beatles necessarily do, because I think he knows that he's going to get people upset about those things. And I, and on the one hand, I think he, 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 he it would be quite happy if you paid him positive attention. But on the other hand, I think he's, he's quite, if you're not going to give him positive attention, then he's quite happy to get the negative attention. I don't think Paul is quite the same in that res in that respect. Um, but uh, but they both love getting attention, and in fact, you you can see a lot of that in the uh, uh, Peter Jackson begins the documentary with the sort of ten minute overview of their career up until January second, nineteen sixty nine, when the documentary starts, and you just see you know Paul and John are constantly you know, vying for attention with the camera. And that's, that is who they were. That was what their personalities were. So to say that you're not getting a real sense of who they are on the basis of that, I think, I think the opposite is true, right? I think that you, you are entirely getting a sense of who they are and you're getting a sense of who George is too, because George was not that personality. He did not like having attention. Right. So, um, so you, you, you get that where you have sort of George clashing with John and Paul in that in that sense. I'm just going to take a moment here. Um, and this is a good opportunity, in fact, to say that um, there is an incredible amount of tea drinking in this documentary. 
um, just uh, uh, crates and crates of tea get uh, consumed uh, over the course of the seven plus hours. Um, so as always, I'm I'm having a, uh, a delicious beverage with um, my uh, uh, discussion here. Yeah, and as pretty much always, it is tea. So it's quite relevant. So just give me one moment here. Tea the way the Beatles would have liked it. Okay. Um, so hold on another sip here before I, before I continue. So yeah, along those lines, I actually think, and I, you know, as I say, I'm a, a big fan of this band and I have consumed a lot of Beatles material over the years, not only their albums, but a lot of their interviews. And I've, you know, I've, not only enjoy their music, but I've always wanted to get some sort of insight into um, who they were as people. That's that's something that that does sort of fascinate me. And I will say that, generally speaking, overwhelmingly, the the place to not go to get a good sense of who the Beatles were are the you know endless amounts of of biographies out there and uh, I've read a lot of them and uh, they're interesting I will say and I and I like to read them and I and I like having have uh, having read them over the years um uh there's an exception I will say there's a great Beatles biography which I'll uh, talk about in just a moment but you don't really get a sense of who the Beatles really were or who even the individual Beatles were from reading these biographies generally speaking because you're almost they're almost they're virtually always written through the bias of the the author who's writing them um so you either get the uh person who thinks that this one particular era you know there's that there's that john lennon fan who and i am a john lennon fan i will say that but there's that john lennon fan who thinks that John Lennon was really was really the real John Lennon during the 1968 to 1972 period when he was, you know, bearded and singing Give Peace a Chance and going to New York and doing his protest songs. Um, that was the real John Lennon. And every other time he's not really real, you know, um, uh, but in, in actual fact, you know, the, all of those things were real, right? But you you get up you get all these books that are read through the prism of that, that that this is who John was. And so they try to they go through his life and they try and find those moments in his earlier period where he was specifically like the way he was during that 68 to 72 period, right? So everything gets read through that prism, right? Um, and you get the same thing with Paul. You know, you you, you get people who think that Paul is a very particular type of person and and so that the narrative all gets told in this in this one particular way. So so I, I feel that generally speaking, the the biographies that I, I have read have been incredibly disappointing because almost always they never they never ring true in terms of the things that I read from them personally. Um, and I don't mean their own particular version of events. I just mean the way they talk the things that they reveal about themselves, not consciously when they are themselves talking. Um, 
maybe I play some armchair psychologist sometimes with them, but uh, and I think I probably will as I as I talk about this movie a little bit more. Um, but you know, I think that oftentimes I, I've gleaned a lot more about who they are just through the things that they sort of unconsciously reveal about themselves when they are talking, um, and it and it often does not line up with the image that I see in the biographies that I read. I will say there's, there's one major exception to that, and that's Mark Lewison's book. But he look if you look at this, this is uh, the extended special edition. This is almost like a plug. I apologize for this. This, by the way, is only part one of this series. He's not done part two or part three, and I sure hope that he has. And for those of you who are listening, I'm showing an extremely large collection here. Uh, this is part one and this is part two. It, they had, it's such a large book that it had to be divided into two parts. Um, this only goes up as far as 1960, the end of 1962. So they have not even released the single Please Please Me yet. They've released exactly two songs on one single, Love Me Do and P.S. I Love You by this point. So this is everything leading up to that. This is the most accurate thing that I have seen in terms of a bi biographical work that's written on them um, because it really does get, I think, at the heart of who they are. And and as Mark Lewison has talked about, you know, he's not interested, he's only interested in the factual information, right? And that comes across in the writing. And, and maybe for some that might not come across as engagingly as a, as a book that's like, you know, John Lennon was always, you know, this rebel who is, again. but in actual fact, you know, it's, it's to me, for somebody who's interested in the has always been interested in who these people really were. Um, this is a much more fascinating read. And that's what makes this Peter Jackson film so fascinating as well, because I think we really get insights into their, into their personalities, right? You know, I think the common conception, you know, either from, because I, I find, generally speaking, that a lot of Beatles fans cannot help themselves from taking sides Right. They they're either for a long time, they were either huge John fans. And if they were huge John fans, they didn't like Paul or they're either huge Paul fans. And if they are huge Paul fans and they don't like John. And then in the last 20 years, I would say you start to get this this rise of the George fan. Um, uh, poor Ringo. That's, that, that's all I will say. Ringo, who I think is a supremely underrated rock and roll drummer, but um, that's maybe a conversation for another time. But uh, but you have had this rise of the George fan in the last 20 years, um, largely based off of the very correct premise that George was overrated, uh, not overrated. In fact, the opposite of that underrated for um for many years and and the fact is that about he's already rehearsing songs in this documentary in jackson's documentary that will end up on his sort of magnum magnum opus the all things must pass album which comes out in 1970 so a year later um but uh so you know you you, you know in the george fans you know will George fans typically don't like Paul, I find. Um, but, you know, I, I'm I'm of the opinion that that they're all great. They're all flawed. Um, but you also have this amazing situation where you have, which is very, which is so rare. I think it's only happened once where you have two of the most creative artists of the century 
uh, happen to have been born in the same place, happen to have found each other, happen to have formed a band, happen to have been able to stay together. I mean, the, the, the chances of all that happening are so rare, which is why you only get a band who is as popular and successful as this band once in a hundred years or however long it's going to be. So, um, so uh, anyway, that's kind of the, you know, I, I try to look at them, you know, not through that prism of I'm a John fan, I'm a Paul fan, I'm a George fan, but just kind of sort of see who they, they actually are. Now, again, to go, to go back, you know, John fans will say, you know, really at the, what we all know, John didn't like Paul, you know, we all think we all know John found Paul annoying or, you know, Paul fans will say, you know, Paul, Paul really did not like what, you know, John was getting into in the late 1960s and, and him and Yoko didn't get along at all. Well, I think that this, um, documentary demystifies those myths in particular. In fact, one of the things that I think that we're seeing in this documentary that's very interesting is how incredibly close John and Paul were. They're constantly looking at each other. They're constantly laughing with each other and at each other's jokes. Um, as surprising as this might seem to some John fans out there, it's quite clear that John finds Paul very funny um, and is is laughing at a lot of what um, uh, Paul is saying. And, and, and Paul obviously very much looks up to John and um, and frequently is defending his relationship with Yoko. In fact, if there's anybody in this film that's consistently defending his relationship with Yoko, it's Paul. Um, so, th so that relationship, I think, is 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 really important in this in this film. The relationship between uh, Paul and 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 John. Um, now, where George fits into this, I think, is very interesting as well. And here's where I might come in with my little psychology here. Um, one thing that's not mentioned in this documentary is, is and it's something that George has said before in interviews. Yeah, I might as well take another drink of tea because, you know, it's, it's consistent with the theme of the evening. Okay. One of the things that George has said is that um, in, the, in the period right before the um, sessions start, Actually, let me just take a moment here to explain even what this whole movie was about. Um, so we learn that um, that the uh, Beatles have this plan uh, to get together, rehearse songs, and the plan is to eventually do them in a live setting, in a live TV special. So there's going to be a live TV special at the end of the month. Um, we find out later on in the film that the original pitch was you will get together and you will do the songs off of the White Album because the White Album had just come out in November of 1968. This is January of 1969. The White Album comes out in November of 1968. Get together, rehearse a few of your, uh, a bunch of your White Album songs and do uh, a show. But as Paul puts it, you know, when this idea was proposed to them, they thought, no, we'll just, we'll come up with new stuff. We'll come up with new songs, which is a very kind of Beatles-y sort of response because as he says, we in that moment, he says, we're, we always are on to the next thing. We always want to think of the next, what the next thing is. Um, and that is, again, part of their strength as, as a creative force because, you know, they, they were, they were extraordinarily restless as, as artists, right? They were never, 
um, interested in staying who they were in that moment. They were always interested in seeing what comes next. How can we push this forward? What's the next thing that we're going to do and accomplish? So they're never they they're never once to kind of rest on their laurels and just continue to do the same old thing. They always want to see what the next thing is going to be. So they weren't satisfied by doing just the White Album song. So they're going to come up with new songs and rehearse those and do those live. But I mean. As somebody who in the past I've I've written music, the idea of coming up with an album's worth of songs, like 14 songs, not only to rehearse them, but to perform them within three weeks is just so it, it gives me anxiety just to think about it. Right. I remember I, I remember when I first started watching the, the documentary. This was what 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 was bothering me. It's like, oh, my God, they have to come up with all of these songs within three weeks and learn them well enough to play them in front of a, a live show, like a, a live audience. Like, how are they, how are they going to do this? And um, in many ways, I think this does become a bit of a source of tension, right? Because Paul is, is thinking, okay, we, we, we don't have time for pleasantries. I'm going to have to tell you how these things are going to go, right? How these songs are going to go. This is what I have in my head. And and that causes, I think, a, a little bit of friction. But um, that's the whole purpose. So so the there was going to be a TV. This was always meant to be a kind of TV special, right? Where you have the, the preliminaries, just them rehearsing these songs. And then the big payoff is the live show. And that's the TV special. Um, so obviously, that goes through a lot of changes. Um, one brief aside, everybody who I have shown this movie to so far has been extraordinarily aggravated with the movie's original director, Michael Lindsay Hogg. Um, so Michael Lindsay Hogg is the, the, the director of the Let It Be film. Um, I read some interesting things about Michael Lindsay Hogg. Michael Lindsay Hogg mentions in the first episode his working with Orson Welles on Welles' film Chimes at Midnight great movie. Um, but he is, uh, he is talking about that. And I read a little bit from Michael Lindsay Hogg's biography and there are, is some suggestion that Michael Lindsay Hogg might in fact be Orson Welles's illegitimate son. And, um, I mentioned this to my friends and they're like, I think, I think I can actually see that because I'll let you look, look up, uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg. He does look like a little bit like he kind of looks like Morrison Wells, but also looks a little bit like Peter Bogdanovich from that time. If you know who Peter Bogdanovich is, directed uh, Last Picture Show and Paper Moon and uh, was a was a very famous filmmaker, but was also a a uh, sort of a student of Orson Wells, eventually became a, a good friend of Orson Wells. In fact, Orson Wells, I believe, was sleeping in Peter Bogdanovich's house for a period of time. But I think that's a story to delve into in more detail at, at another time but um um so, but to see him as both orson wells and peter bogdanovich somehow even makes it more likely to me that he might be orson wells's son and he walks around with this with this big cigar throughout uh, the, the the whole documentary and he seems to have um have got Paul uh, hooked on cigars as well during this during this filming, which I don't remember seeing Paul ever smoking a cigar in the original Let It Be, but he's smoking them all throughout the uh, Peter Jackson uh, three-part series. Um, but he keeps suggesting this same location 
uh, I think in Libya. He's like, just imagine it, the torch lights, it's going to be amazing. The, the rest of the Beatles are really not that interested in it at all. I think that Paul and John like a big idea, so they're intrigued by it. George is, and Ringo are flat out against it. Ringo, uh, one of the reasons why they're, they're sort of on, on the clock and why they have to get this done quickly is because Ringo's due to start shooting a movie at the end of January, a movie called The Magic Christian, which he does end up um, starring in. And it's being filmed in this Twickenham Studios, which is where the Beatles start off their rehearsals and where the filming starts off for the first the first week. They hate it in Twickenham Studios. They say that right off the bat, right? We we don't like it here. The acoustics are bad. The sound is awful. The mood is bad. Everything is wrong. Um, uh, so that's contributing to sort of the the, the bad vibes as well. Um, also, there are uh, Harry Krishnas that are that I think George keeps bringing in. They multiply over the days. So the first day there's one. The next day there's two, um, and. Uh, and so uh, that's also part of the, the the atmosphere as well. And there's an there's an interesting bit at the beginning where uh, uh, John notices the Harry Krishna in the corner and says, "Hey, who's that little old man?" Which is a line from A Hard Day's Night. And uh, and Paul says uh, he's very clean though, which again is a callback to A Hard Day's Night. So they're oddly enough very aware of their own mythology in this as well. But anyway, that's kind of the background of of the film. And so I'm glad that I was able to get that in at at the 50 minute mark of this. Um, and then, uh, so, but, but, and this is not said in the, in the film, but George has just been hanging out with the band, the band, the band, uh, Rick Danko, Levon Helm, Robbie Robertson, that band. And uh, I think what I'm guessing is that he's kind of been noticing that at least at that point, the band really was working together as a, as a unit they were all contributing to the music. In fact, this ends up being a point of contention that Levon Helm, the drummer of the band, has many years later where he says, look, we all worked on this, but Robbie Robertson was the one that got, got most of the credit. Um, that's, again, another, another can of worms. But I think that uh, George was probably witnessing a much more democratic environment. And then he comes back to, to the Beatles. And... Uh, and uh, Ryan's here. He says, hello, everyone. Thanks so much for uh, for uh, stopping by, Ryan. Good to see you. Uh, he says, hello, Levon Helm. I wish Levon Helm were here. That would be that would be fantastic. One of my if I, I just mentioned before, you know, Ringo to me is a supremely um, underrated drummer, but uh, but I still don't quite think he's a patch on the great Levon Helm. But uh um, so yeah, Levon Helm, uh, always do a shout out for Levon, but, uh, Levon, Levon likes his money. I think Elton John reference there. So, um, one of the best, uh, one of the best Elton songs, in fact. Um, so, um, George was in this environment and he comes back. And one of the things that he says, uh, in this conversation with Paul, a very, again, intriguing conversation with Paul. I can't tell in this conversation whether Paul is just not invested in wanting to listen to what um, what uh, George has to say, or if he's stoned, or what's going on. Because, but George is saying to him, you know, he says to Paul, Paul and George don't have that many one-on-ones in this. But here's a moment where George is kind of really talking very 
on a very personal level to uh, Paul. And he says, um, you know, he says, I never really felt that I contributed much to Beatles albums until the last one. And he's referring to the White Album. Uh, and he says, and he's basically saying that, that I think he's saying that this is what I want to be the case from this point on. I, I think what he's pitching in this moment is to say, ideally what the Beatles would be ideally is if we all were a kind of democratic unit where we were all kind of contributing equally to this project. And, you know, Paul at that moment is smoking a cigar and he just goes, yeah. And that's it. You know, he, he, he disengages after that. And I, I think the main issue that George has is he's like, okay, you know what? I, we've, we've done this for years and John and Paul have been in charge of this band. Um, the last album, I had a bit more to say, and I was allowed to have a little bit more say in the process. I, I want that to be a thing. Now, what we end up seeing is that we have Paul, who's basically giving direction, right? He's operating, you know, and, and look, the, the fact of the matter is, you look at most other bands, look at, say, the other big competing band at the time, my other favorite band from the 60s, the Beach Boys. You had one guy in that band who not only was not giving directions to his former bandmates, he wasn't letting them play on, on the albums after a while. So you get to an album like Pet Sounds, and Brian is using session musicians. And he's just saying, you play this, you play this, you play this, you play that, right? Well, I mean, that's not all that unusual, you know? And so, you know, Paul was basically saying, all right, here's how I think the song should go. This is what I think the arrangement should be. And I, you know, so I think his position is in some ways understandable, especially in the uh, given the time constraints that they had. But then I think George's um, his, his position is also understandable, right? Um, at a certain point, the thing that really causes George to say, "I'm leaving the band," I think, uh, well, it, it doesn't happen right away. But they're working on get back, and get back is a long process throughout this movie, and it goes from we see the moment that Paul actually comes up with the song. And it's the most amazing moment in the, in, in the first part of this, of this series. It actually reminds me a little bit of the, um, for, for my, for my Canadian audience, which is probably everybody. Um, I, um, uh, there used to be these like, um, Oh God, what were they called? There was a special name for them, but like moments that go through the history of Canada. It was little commercials, 30 second commercials where you take famous moments from Canada's history and you, um, and, and you kind of dramatize them in, in this, you know, it was a nice little bit of PR for Canada. And, uh, and uh, there was one that was Marshall McLuhan and Marshall and Marshall McLuhan is standing in this classroom and some student stands up in class. He's like, so what you're saying is blah, 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 blah. And Marshall McLuhan says, no, what I'm saying is the medium is the message. And it's like, which, you know, to me was like, I always found this ridiculous because like, that's obviously not how he came up with the medium is the message, you know, but it's like, we're going to show you the moment where he comes up with the medium is the message. And it's going to be incredible. And but we're actually seeing it happen in this movie. We're seeing Paul 
come up with get back from just him plunking away on the bass um, towards this, you know, big song where they're deciding oh, oh, two weeks later is going to be their next single. So um, I'm going to uh, actually, I'm going to put this up here. Ryan says that his thought is that Paul would like things to be a democracy, but is also in an unfortunate position of knowing that his ideas are more often than not better. I think that that's true. And there's this moment later on in, in at the beginning of the second part, after George walks out, Paul and John have this lunch and the filmmakers hide a microphone in a flower pot and we get the audio of that discussion. And John says to Paul, he's like, I know you're okay. You want George to be able to play things on his own. He says, but you're scared. He says, you're scared that, it's not going to be the way you want it to be. And uh, so, you know, on the one hand, I think that what Ryan says here is exactly right, that Paul has this internal struggle. On the one hand, he would love it if he could just sit back and everybody does his part. But what he really wants is for everybody to just know what is in his head and for them to instinctively be able to play that without him having to say, play it like this. Because when he's having an argument with George earlier on that you play whatever you want me to play, I'll play whatever you want me to play fight. Paul says, I don't like being the boss. He says, I'm scared of being the boss, which is a more interesting way of putting it. I'm scared of being the boss. And he says, and I feel like I have been for the last couple of years, which I'm sure was probably true. And actually a very significant piece of self-awareness from McCartney, I think, at that moment. But yeah, I think that that is his conflict. He doesn't want to be the boss. He doesn't really want to tell them what to do. But at the same time, he wants them to do it the way he thinks is the best way to do it. And I remember back back in the 90s when they were, when the, when the living Beatles got together to make Free as a Bird, um, I remember hearing on the news George making this kind of offhanded sort of critical remark, which was to say, yeah, it was pretty much just like being back in the studio where Paul was calling the shots. And I said this to my dad at the time, this was, I was 15 years old, but I remember his response, which was George, George should probably listen to Paul. And I mean, you know, I mean, George wrote some great songs. He made it, he made one, one great solo album, but I think I, you know, I think overwhelmingly, um, you know, this is obviously a subjective view, but I think that Paul was probably the stronger creative talent of the two of them. Uh, he was a stronger musical talent of the two of them as well, which, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to say this because I know that a lot of people will argue that, you know, George, I remember reading an article saying that George was the great musical, um, uh, it was the great sort of musician of the band. But the fact is, uh, and this is just an unfortunate reality, that uh, we have we have on authority and on record the fact that, you know, there were moments throughout the Beatles where George couldn't get the part. And so Paul had to step in and do it. So Paul's doing the guitar on Taxman. He's doing the lead guitar on Ticket to Ride. He's doing the lead guitar on Another Girl. He's doing the lead guitar on Good Morning, Good Morning. And, uh, you know, it's uh, George eventually, I think, becomes a greater guitarist. And I think it's in this moment, early 1969, where George is 
suddenly discovering his ability to play the guitar well. He acknowledges in this documentary too, in that conversation where he said, I, I contributed more in the last album and, and basically implying I want to contribute more on, on this one. Um, he acknowledges he's not one of those guitarists who can really jam. Like he just can't do that. He says that, you know, I can't do that. Um, so, you know, but there are things that he can do, but he's, he's obviously quite, um, he's quite, um, uh, unconfident, I think, in his abilities, because at the in during the discussion, when uh, I'm seeing some comments here, which I'm very excited about, and I'm going to get to them in just a second, I'll put them up and I'll and I'll respond to them. Um, but uh, which is fantastic. But um, during the during the, um, the the on the day where George actually does walk out, Paul is basically just saying to George, you know, you just need to play the offbeat with uh, with Ringo, just the tune. Where, where John will be able to noodle around on the guitar. You have to do that. George says at one point, he says two things. He says, first, he says, you need Eric Clapton, right? Basically saying, you, you don't, you obviously don't think I'm good enough, or I'm, I'm obviously not good enough to do this. You bring in somebody who's, who's a better guitarist. John says, no, we need George Harrison. And then Paul says, yeah, we need George Harrison. Um, and then, but then uh, the conversation keeps going and George says, you only need one guitarist for this basically saying you're basically just telling me that there's there's i i'm i'm useless on this song at this point and uh and paul paul not quite not quite catching the moment says yeah um and then he but then he kind of goes on to, to something else but obviously george is feeling quite unconfident and paul's just saying like to a guy who said just a few days earlier i want to contribute more to this band paul saying basically try and go unheard in this song and uh and obviously i think that that affects him and then they go into two of us where it's just paul and john there's a montage and peter jackson does a great job of this there's a montage of just paul and john talking to each other while george is sitting down watching them kind of playing along the guitar just sort of watching them try figure out this song together and then he gets up and says i'm leaving the band now and i do i think that this is just a moment where he's like i i Maybe I'm not as good as these guys. Maybe I'm not quite at their level, but I still want more than this. You know, I want to do more than just this, than just sit here, take direction, play the offbeat, watch as these two guys figure out, arrange a song together. Um, I, I need more than this, you know, uh, and, 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 I, and I think a lot of it comes down to that. So I want to get some of these comments here because there's some good ones. Um, so Ryan says, Paul is clearly failing as a friend. He ignores George's feelings. But as a musician, looking at the Beatles from a historical perspective is successful. It's hard to watch. Yeah, I mean, so I mentioned earlier uh, tonight that, you know, they break, They John says he's leaving the band on September 20th. But interestingly, there's another meeting that takes place 12 days earlier, September 8th, there's a meeting. And at that meeting, John proposes a new way of organizing Beatles albums, um, which is interesting because, again, a lot of people think that the Beatles were just were on the verge of breaking up at this point. But but John has this they have this meeting and John says, let's do another album and let's do it this way. This album never got made. But this was this was his suggestion. He says, well, we'll split it up. I get four songs, Paul gets four songs, George gets four songs, Ringo gets two songs. Ringo, again, got to feel bad for Ringo. But he says that, you know, he says that the, the, this this should be how it goes. 
and and Paul says at this meeting, and it's recorded this meeting because Ringo's not there. He's in the hospital. So they've recorded this meeting for, for Ringo. And then take a drink. Paul has some hesitations about this. And he says, I, he says, I have to admit in the past, I didn't think George's songs were all that good. Is what he says. Uh, he says, I think he says, until this year, I didn't think George's songs were all that good. Uh, which is, and he says it right to, right where George is, 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 is right when in the, when George is right in the room with him, he says, this, says this. And, you know, I think that Paul, again, is kind of stuck between like, if an album that has four of my songs, four of John's songs and four of George's songs would be more democratic, which is a good thing. But I think he's also probably thinking, and it will also not be as good of an album, which is a bad thing. So what, for Paul is going to be the thing that outweighs the other. Do we put out a better product or do we do the thing that's just right for us as friends? And that is not necessarily the easiest thing to answer, right? If you're a creative artist, you think, do I, do I potentially, if I, not to say that I think it would have weakened their work. It might not have. If you think about the songs that George was doing at that time, he was doing some really good songs. Paul didn't necessarily know that all things must pass was coming up the pipeline, but, um, but, you know, I think that's the thing that's going through Paul's head. And, and it's, I, I think that, that Ryan is right when he says, you know, it's, it's like, he's not being a good friend, but he's, he's, he's being a good artist. Right. And so it's, it's, it's a, uh, it's a tough one. I have, I have a comment here. You may have mentioned earlier, but worth noting that George was the youngest Beatle. He was still a kid compared to Paul and John when they started. It must have been hard to change that dynamic. Yeah. I mean, first of all, also, an even crazier thing about this is that George, at this point in the in the film, in their lives, is 25 years old. You know, 25. Um, as uh, As my friend Anton said, I think, when we were watching it, he said, you know, George is 25, Paul is 27, um, John and, and Ringo are 28. And, you know, think about yourselves when you're that age. You know, you, you still, you know, you see the world a bit more clearly than you saw it when you were 18 years old. But you still don't quite entirely know the world, you know, um, and and certainly they would probably know it more than your average 28 year old would because of the just the general experiences that, that they had. But at the end of the day, they're still people in their mid to late 20s. And, you know, they don't have it quite all together as as adults yet. Uh, they, they came into a tremendous amount of success very early on. And now they're in some ways trying to engage with it. But the point there that, that T was making, I think, is 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 absolutely right, too, that you know, George was 13 when this band started, 13 years old. And uh, you had Paul and John, who basically established themselves as good friends. George was Paul's friend. And that was just sort of the nature of their dynamic. Uh, and and I think it was hard for George to, to sort of outgrow that or, or to, to get beyond the, that perception. Um, so uh, Ryan says, two more things. I wonder how much of a role Epstein played in making the dynamic work. It feels that George believes Epstein's death made things bad. I can see this if Epstein were a referee. Um, 
Yeah, they say at one point, George makes the point, he says things haven't been the same since Mr. Epstein died. <clears throat> um, yeah, it's, it's, that is interesting. Um, I would, one of the things I think that I would say is that if any of the Beatles had a not great relationship with Brian Epstein, their manager, so Brian Epstein becomes their manager in 1962, I think, 62. Maybe late sixty one, late sixty one, sixty two. Maybe maybe late sixty one. Sorry, it's in it's in this it's in this book um, somewhere. But uh, well, I'd have to look through it. Um, if any of them, if any of the Beals had a slightly negative relationship with Epstein, it was Paul. Um, and um, the the others, I think, got along with him better. And uh, you know, I think that. In, in some ways, Epstein was was keeping them all in check. You know, he was the one. I, Paul Paul makes this point, uh, and I think it's quite correct that Epstein was like a father figure for them, and he was there to sort of just make sure everything was always under control. You know, this and 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 basically kept things to a specific schedule, and Paul was trying to make that happen as well. And I think that even though Paul was not the oldest one in the band it's kind of like that sort of oldest siblings scenario where, you know, when the parents go away and they leave the oldest kid in charge and then the young kids are, are like start to resent the old kid who's in the oldest sibling who is in charge. And they're like, you're not mom and dad. Why? How could you, how could you tell me what to do? Like, what, 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 what the hell is this? Um, and um, sorry, I got ahead of myself here with the, with the points with the comments, but um and I think that that was kind of their reaction to Paul. Like, 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 who the hell are you? <laughs> like, we were all the same 10 minutes ago. And, and now you're just telling us all what to do. Um, so, yeah, more comments here. Uh, thanks so much. Keep the comments coming, by the way. Paul could then fight for his beliefs about what is best without without being boss. Oh, if, if Epstein were alive, yeah. Um, Paul and George are both passive aggressive. Paul wants to say, look, I need you to play this better because it is better, but won't say it. Yeah, they're all passive aggressive, I think. And um I think maybe not Ringo, but um but John John again, it's interesting that John is just sitting there throughout a lot of this, especially during those early Twickenham sessions. One of the things that also kind of goes unsaid but is underlying a lot of those uh, the, the at least the first episode is that John is is in his heroin phase at this point. And so he he's Apart from the very first day, he's the last person to show up to the sessions. Um, he ends up getting significantly later and later and later as the sessions go on. He ends up showing up wearing the same clothes. He kind of makes a joke out of it saying, I'm wearing continuity clothes. Like, so that in the movie, it looks like I'm always wearing the same thing. But you can kind of tell like he's he's on a he's he's on a bender. And um, and uh, I'm using the hip terms like bender. Um, but, uh, there's a, there's something that Peter Jackson doesn't include in the film. He shows that John is doing an interview for Canadian television. You can actually find the CBC interview on YouTube if you look it up. And John is completely strung out in the first half of the interview. He's talking at first. I was sure there was something wrong with the video because he's talking like this through it. And um, and then at some point in it, he says, I have to go and be sick. And he goes off and he talks about the interview. He says he he, he talks about this in the, the Peter Jackson documentary, but we don't see it. 
uh, but it's there. It's you, you can find it. So John is very, um, you know, he's making a lot of jokes in the early in the early uh, throughout the whole series. But he's when these moments take place between John and and uh, between George and Paul, he's he's very much sitting back and sort of watching it uh, take place. Um, but interestingly enough, uh, in that recorded secretly recorded conversation between John and Paul. Paul says to John, listen, you're you're the boss. And John says, he says, you've always been the boss. And John says, well, not really. And Paul says, yes, yes, you have always been the boss. And he says, and I kind of consider myself to be the secondary boss. Now, I think it's interesting that Paul is thinking about a hierarchy in these terms, right? I don't think John or any of the other Beatles are quite dwelling as much on what is the structure of power within the Beatles? Who is on top? Who is on the bottom? You know, I don't think that this is something that keeps John up at night. I don't think it's something that keeps George up at night. But I think Paul has some very decisive feelings about it. You know, John is the top. John's the top, you know. Yeah, I think it was obvious that John was the top. And if, if I was going to be anywhere, you know, in that in that list, I would definitely be secondary. You know, I'd be secondary. Boss George third. Ringo, you know, George and Ringo were kind of tied for the, the third spot, let's say. But, you know, if push comes to shove, I'd be... Anyway, sorry. People have told me the most awkward parts of these when I do these impressions. So, um, but... but um, but he says that to John, right? That you know, he, I, you know, I, you're the boss, and I always considered myself to be the, the sort of the, the secondary boss. And, and John is saying, you know, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I, he says, I don't operate like this. You know, when you, when I, you bring in a song, you know, I don't think about telling you how it should go, or when, when I bring in a song, I don't think of telling you how it should be played and stuff like that. So, um, you know, they're just thinking on on these sort of uh, different terms, but. One, one last thing I'll say about this is that Paul's point about John being boss is is not entirely incorrect because in the second episode, things turn around to a much in a much more positive way quite drastically when George brings in Billy Preston one day and Billy Preston is just talking with them. And you can see as soon as, and, and they've been talking all along about how wouldn't it be great if we can get a piano player to come because a lot of the songs need piano, but we're trying to do this all live. And so we can, we need two guitars. So what are we going to do? And it just so happens that Billy Preston is, is in town and he comes in and he sits down with them and you can see that John is taking the lead in that conversation. And he's like saying to them, this is what we're trying to do. This is what we need. He's like, so, you know, maybe you can you can play with us for a little bit and see how it goes and then he plays and it's amazing like right away everything lifts like the 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 songs get better um they they almost automatically sound the way that they end up sounding on the album you know and, and they hadn't up until that point they all seem happier and as, as soon as they finish the first song with billy preston at least as far as the movie's concerned i don't know how peter jackson's edited it but um but John says, John says, you're in the group. He says this to, to, to Billy Preston. And I think it, it had to be John to do that. The others would not have done that, right? Those are those are calls that are John's to make. Um, and that's an offer for John to make. And uh, and I think that there is there was still some, even though, you know, John was going through a very, let's say, fair moment um, that... Uh, <laughs> well, thank you. I, I, I see a comment. That was a good impression. I waited to hear my John, but um, 
Yeah, you, yeah, you see, I can do a good job. Nah, I can't, no, I'm not going to go through that again. Um, a, anyway, um, uh, uh, but th those calls were definitely John's to make. And so I think that uh, that he's, he is still very much the boss, even though he's taking more of a, a backseat role. Um, so I want to get more uh, comments here. Uh, let's see. Uh, George seems to want to say, uh, I need to feel heard. If you don't listen to me, why am I here? But he doesn't so much. Yeah, I, 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 it's also interesting the way that he leaves, right? The way that he decides to leave the band. He's like, I'm going to leave now. John's, John says, when? He says, now. And he has that kind of final last line of, you know, see you around the clubs. Uh, you know, you'd have to think, he's, he's obviously very upset. He's very emotional, but he just, he has this, and it is kind of a mature way of dealing with it because it is like, I'm, I'm going to leave now, but it's also passive aggressive, right? Cause he's not saying why he's leaving. He's not yelling at them. He's not saying thanks a lot for, you know, blah, 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 blah. He's not making it awkward, but he's also being passive aggressive at the same time. Like this is a bit of a, this is a bit of a power move on his part, right? Now you're going to have to come after me, right? Now you're going to have to, to, to make you state your case to me. Um, he, he brings it, Ryan says he brings in increasing numbers of Harry Krishnas to try and make himself heard. That's an interesting point. I, th there might be something to that, right? That that's a kind of moment. It's like, I, this is how I'm going to exert my influence on this band, right? Um, so, yeah, you need to say what you think. You can't just keep adding Harry Krishnas and hope that people <laughs> understand you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's 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 a funny point that Ryan's making, but also I think true. Like I, I do think that that's very much what is going on. And I think that, again, you are learning a lot about who these guys are, not outright from what they're explicitly saying, but also just what's implicit in the way that they are talking. Um, I think that you, you, you get a lot of who the Beatles were as people from this movie. Um, I, I might go out on a limb and say that I have learned more about them as people than, if, than I have from anything else that I have seen of theirs and from anything else that I have read of theirs. Uh, I, I do think that um, that you, you, you find out about, about who they are a lot through this. Um, John bringing Yoko in is similar. I think that he loves her, but when you don't say things, sometimes they come out in strange ways. And that's, that's a thing too that they talk about um, how when obviously they don't film the moments where they go to see George because... And I, and I want to make this point, too, actually, that after George leaves, they go a bit nuts, right? So so you see about another 15, 20 minutes uh, after George leaves of what happens that day. And they are very much sort of off the wall. They have this sort of freak out. Uh, what they, they call it a freak out where, where Yoko's singing and, and their Ringo's going crazy on the drums and Paul is doing feedback with his bass guitar, and Paul is is um, lifting himself up on things in the in the studio. And um, John is doing this really ridiculous version of Maxwell Silverhammer. Uh, and and then there's this very nice moment at the end of part one where George is gone, but John and Paul and Ringo have this kind of like group hug, which you know all of that demonstrated how important the group was to all of them at that 
moment in their lives. And obviously, two years later, when they are all on their solo careers, you would maybe get a different story from them. But in January 1969, it seems clear from this movie that they were all still very important to one another. Um, and, you know, they, I think in many ways they were kind of like a family. And so when George walks out, they just go a little, a little nuts. And, um, and then it becomes very important of like, okay, how are we going to get him back? They go and see him at his house. We don't get a, we don't get a recording of that. They, the directors can't put it put anything in the flower pots at George's house. And what we find out is that, you know, the meeting doesn't go well, but partly one of the big reasons why the meeting doesn't go well is because Yoko is speaking for John. And again, that's a power move. I think that John is making, right. John is very decisively de deciding not to, not to speak and having Yoko speak for him. Um, which, you know, obviously Yoko historically gets a very bad rap, but imagine being in that position, you know, imagine being Yoko and I don't know what led to this moment, but imagine being Yoko and, and John comes up to you and says, listen, we're about to go into this meeting with these, you know, world famous people. And, uh, I want you to do all the talking for me. You know, imagine the kind of pressure that that, that must have been uh, for her in that situation. But in some ways, he's, he's kind of saying, you're going to be the bad guy in this. I'm not going to take that responsibility. You're going to have to do that for me. And, you know, that's a trait of John's, unfortunately, that goes back a long ways. There's a lot of stuff in this in this big book before that they were before they were a world famous pop band back when they were the quarry men in the 1950s and john would not want somebody in their group anymore or they would not want somebody to manage them anymore and they would just stop calling them like john did not like confrontation john was not into confrontation at all you know for a guy that has a reputation of being a bit of a, a bit of a tough guy he was not into confrontation quite clearly and that that comes across i think in this uh in, in this documentary as well. He doesn't want, uh, uh, so, so, so T asks a good question. Was it John's idea or Yoko's idea for Yoko to do the speaking? I don't know. I, I really don't know. Um, maybe it was Yoko's idea, uh, to do, to do the speaking. Um, uh, the original, <laughs> the original ghosting. Yeah. John was ghosting people all the time. Um, when it comes, oh, and the the biggest example of this was was the firing of Pete Best, right? A guy who was drumming with them for years, who, by the way, was not a particularly good drummer, but um, Ringo was much better, a much better drummer than Pete. But they get Brian to call him, right? And then they avoid speaking to to Pete Best from that point on. And even like a, a, a week after they fire him, they're playing the same venue. And they are like crossing paths with the one band, the band that Pete Best is now in is going in one direction and the Beatles are going in the other. And they just kind of like this as they go through because they just couldn't, they could not, they could not take that kind of confrontation, which, you know, I mean, not a, not a good quality, but in some ways really does humanize them because you think of them as being these all powerful people. But at the end of the day, were had these weaknesses right these sort of very clear weaknesses 
um, and and anxieties and and uh, obviously a lot of nervousness about things. Um, would it have been better had they been, you know, uh, more proactive? Uh, and uh, yeah, probably. But you know, on on another level, I I, I can appreciate the, the humanity of it to to some degree. Um, I, uh, I, I, so I think that's why I'm assuming that John had Yoko speak for him rather than Yoko sort of offer herself as somebody to speak. Uh, and, and, and maybe it was just an unspoken assumption that they, John and Yoko both had. Um, but, um, but I don't know. I will say for the record, I, I don't know. It, it could have been, it could have been Yoko saying, I'll do the speaking. And John said, uh, okay. But just from what my understanding of, of John, I, I would I think on some level that and also, you know, John, John had the kind of the ability to 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 be the one speaking like um, so, you know, that was he decided to not take that kind of responsibility in that moment. But um, I will say uh, it is a kind of an you know, because they come back from that meeting and it's Paul and Ringo, Paul and Linda and Ringo who are being sort of interviewed. And and Paul has this very kind of, this sort of moment where he kind of looks off in the distance sort of glassy eye thinking, thinking that this is the end. George is not in the band. John is once again, not showing up. He says, and then there were two, uh, meaning himself and, and Ringo, which as somebody pointed out in another podcast, uh, ends up being doubly poignant given who is currently alive. Um, but he's, he has that moment where he says, you know, if, if we, because the question is like, what if you forced John to be more active in the Beatles to, um, you know, to, you know, put his foot down more when it comes to Yoko, um, and Paul says, I'm not, I'm not going to be the one to basically says, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm not going to be the one to do that. Um, and he, he also says, you know, if it comes between the Beatles, if John has to make the decision between the Beatles and Yoko, we know he's going to choose Yoko. So he's like, so, you know, Paul, Paul is in a bit of a delicate spot in this. Right. And, and in that interview, he's also defending John and Yoko's relationship quite a bit. But then later that day, John does show up. And then they're like, okay, let's go see George. And then they find out, well, George is actually going to be in Liverpool until Wednesday. And so then, so then Yoko says, well, then Wednesday is the day we're going to go see him. And Paul's like, yeah, but in Paul's head, he's probably thinking, you know, you're probably the reason why George didn't come back on the weekend. And, and, you know, and, but Paul just doesn't, doesn't, want that confrontation either right he's not going to bring that up uh so you know it is there is a lot of a lot of interesting politicking going on in this in this film we're seeing a lot of stuff um i should probably not let this go too much longer although if anybody wants to make more comments or or ask any questions uh please feel free to do that because they've been so wonderful i've really appreciated them um one other thing, um, actually bridging from Yoko, I've, I've always not been uh, in the camp who thinks that Yoko was responsible for the breakup of the Beatles. But I do think that if, if you're going to 
pin it down to one person. And I don't necessarily think you can just pin it down to one person. But if there's somebody who's really responsible for the breakup of the Beatles, it's uh, a guy by the name of Alan Klein. And Alan Klein uh, figures in to this movie. He st his name starts coming up in the second part. Who is Alan Klein? Well, Alan Klein was a um, a manager. He was man he managed the Rolling Stones for a while. Um, he um, he managed. Uh, I can't remember who else he managed, but he he's a New York guy uh, and always has this desire to manage the Beatles. And he scores this meeting with John in uh, right about midway through the Let It Be sessions, the, the Get Back sessions. Um, and what ends up happening after this series that we're watching ends is that John, George, and Ringo want to sign on with Alan Klein and Paul doesn't. And Based on some of the things, and now we know a lot of things that happen historically, we end up knowing a lot of things that happen afterwards. And eventually John, George, and Ringo become very disenchanted with Alan Klein. And in fact, there's an interview from around 73 where, where John is being interviewed. And he says in that interview, he says, let's, he says, let's just say Paul's suspicions about Alan Klein may have been right. And, um, so that's the so there is eventually confirmation that uh, you know they all come to, come around to Paul's position. Paul eventually, <laughs> his point about it is is kind of funny because he's like, even then, you know, uh, John's John's statement on the matter was, I well, I guess you were right, but you always have to be right, don't you? And he's like, you can't just say, no, you can't just say that I was right. You have to make a big thing about it. Um, and uh, so, but but that is that is true. Um, and uh, but even in just this documentary, you can kind of see why Paul would have not have been on board with Alan Klein. Um, Ring, there's Alan Klein comes to Apple, and they all go and they talk to him, and they're talking about the meeting the next day. And John's like, he was great, wasn't he? He's just great. Uh, and Ringo's like, uh, well, yeah, he's uh, I like that he's a he's a He's a con man, but he's a con man for us. And it's like he's a con man, but he'll be on our side. He's a con. He's a con man who's 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 conning people for us rather than conning us. And I can certainly see somebody in a group of four saying, "Is that a good thing?" <laughs> Wait, let's let's. Can we just pause this for a second and say? Do we really want a con man, somebody who we acknowledge is a con man, to be representing us? Well, Ringo seems to be saying, yeah. And John's saying, yeah, he's great. He's fantastic. And um, but I can certainly see why Paul is saying, no, I, I'm I, I'm not quite on board with this. And there's I think it might be Glenn Johns who is who is working with them as an engineer at that point, co-producer engineer. I think it's Glenn Johns. I have to rewatch it. Who says He's he's like he's listening to them all being so positive about him, but you can tell that he doesn't really like Alan Klein. <laughs> but he's like, yeah, yeah, he was he was great. Yeah, notice how he, he whenever you bring up something that uh, uh, he might be wrong about, um, you uh, he, he uh, changes the subject very quickly. He's like, I didn't I didn't like that, <laughs> and um, and that just kind of gets sort of glossed over. But um, 
you know, you can kind of see how this is this is the beginning. This is the beginning of the end, right? Alan Klein. Okay, great. So uh, Ryan says it's it is Glenn Johns. He says it. This is spelling out the beginning of the end. And and for those who are sort of versed in you know uh, the the whole Beatles lore, you just sort of know when John says, "Oh, uh, we're going to meet Alan Klein uh, tomorrow night." That this is this is really the beginning of the end, because then Paul refuses to be part of the Beatles once Alan Klein has made the the manager of the band. Paul's like, "All right, I'm out. That's it. I'm done," and uh, and that's it. Really, that 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 kind of ends up being it. I mean, there's there's way more technical details which I'm not going to get into, but but that's essentially it. And and uh, and so that has that that's an uh, an interesting part of this movie because there's no discussion of alan klein in the in the original one i want to get a few more comments here from ryan it's interesting to see how well paul and john get along also john really seems to lack confidence in his musical abilities and perhaps goes political so that he can have something of his own oh okay so there's that that makes me made me think of something else so yeah i mean again as i said before I got so anxious when this at the beginning of this thinking, how are they going to pull this together? Cause, cause it's not just that, I mean, they're, they're coming in with some songs, but they're not coming into this with 14 songs and saying, okay, let's rehearse them all and get this together. They seem to be coming in with about six songs. Uh, one of them is all things must pass, which doesn't make it very far. Uh, one of them is Maxwell Silver Hammer, which doesn't make it very far, just in terms of the way Jackson is presenting it. A few of them end up going all the way to the rooftop concert, but um, but not all of them. John, it's it's made very apparent, and they talk about this, that John's not coming in with that much material. And I think it's partly the fact that he's he's now addicted to uh to heroin i think that that's probably a big part of it that his days are being filled up kind of in a in a reverie and so he's not writing songs at one point paul comes up with him and says says are you are you writing any 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 songs right now and john's like john john first is like nope and paul's like well we're gonna we're getting to a point where we're reaching a crisis because we're doing a live show if we're doing a live show as the beatles people are expecting at least half of the songs to be John songs, right? So where are your songs? <laughs> Otherwise they're basically going to be seeing a Paul solo show because we're certainly not going to be playing any of George's songs that he's bringing in. So, um, you know, I think that, I think that I, but I also think that to, to some degree, he's probably losing a little bit of confidence as well. Um, but again, like I, I think he's probably thinking the way I'm, I'm thinking like when I, some people work really well under pressure. Okay. Some people are like, are the kinds of people who can write that essay for a class the night before, but I was never that kind of person. Right. In that sense, in terms of my working style, I'm a lot like Paul. At one point, Paul will say, we need a structure of work. He's like, it's, it doesn't, it's not swinging to be aimless. He says at one point, um, and using very kind of sixties verbiage. And, uh, and I think that in many ways that's probably worked for John as well because you know uh, you know historically 
you know, they came up with the title, A Hard Day's Night at the last minute, and John goes off and writes A Hard Day's Night, and it becomes one of the biggest singles of the early years. The same thing then happens with Help. He goes off and kind of writes that song to order. So historically, he's been able to do it. But it's quite possible that because of a variety of different factors that are going on, that maybe John's not quite feeling, he's not quite as able to um, meet those pressures or those pressures are not providing a creative spark in the way that they once did for him. Um, because he, he certainly is not coming up with more songs throughout the rest of the, of the films. He does snap out of it. I think as the, as the show goes on, um, he becomes a lot more like the, the John that we, that we tend to know. Uh, he has this great running bit because he's asked to do this like bumper for a um, for the rock and roll circus that he did with the Rolling Stones, where he looks into the camera and says, uh, and now your host for the evening, the Rolling Stones. And then uh, every time that he sees the camera on him, he says that line after that. At first he says the bottles and then he says another one. I can't remember who it is. But then after that, he's just the Rolling Stones. He says it over and over again. And, so, and it's a very... Lenny moment um, in, in the in the film. It's it's great. It's a great sort of running gag that that he that he pulls. Um, the other thing that I I I wanted to bring up um, before before I I leave is that and it's interesting that George does this. He waits for Paul to leave. I don't know if he's actually waiting for Paul to leave, but this happens when Paul leaves. Paul goes off to have lunch with his brother Mike, <clears throat> who makes uh, an appearance in this film. And George has this conversation with John. He's like, he says, I was thinking about the idea of putting out a solo album of my own. And he says, the, he says, the reason why I want to do it is it's for two reasons. One, I want to hear what an album of my songs entirely back to back to back sounds like, which, you know, as somebody who's recorded music, I can, I can, I can see that impulse because it's one thing to record music. It's another thing to sequence it, right? To put all the songs together in a certain kind of order and see kind of what what kind of vibe you want to achieve with, with this collection of things you recorded. And then it takes on this kind of life. It's like, oh, this is what this thing sounds like when I put this all together. And, and so I, I could absolutely see what George is saying in that moment. He's like, what, what would an album, what would a George Harrison album actually be like is i think what he's is what I, he's thinking but he says another thing in that moment and he says um he says the other thing that it, it would do would be it would allow me to get through this enormous volume of songs that i have because at that point he does have this big backlog of songs and he says and 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 still keep the beatles thing going because he says because ideally we will we'll still be making albums, he says, uh, and I want to be able to still be making albums. But, you know, I think I think George is kind of thinking psychologically what's going to work for me here, because he he as I suggested before, he's leaving the band thinking, you know, yeah, I might not be the guitarist who can do all these jams, but I can be more than just this guy who's doing the offbeat with Ringo on Get Back. You know, I I. I, I want to be more than just this, right? But at the same time, I think for George, he is thinking, I also want to be a Beatle. You know, he is in this environment 
laughing with them at their jokes and he likes telling jokes to them and he likes presenting his songs to them. He presents I Me Mine to them. He presents um, um, For You Blue to them. Uh, he's like, this, this, is, this is what I was just working on last night. And he plays it, strums it for them, brings in his last, what Paul starts to call his last night songs. Um, and I, again, I think that's a, another telling moment that all through this, you do not get the sense that this is their breakup period. You really, in fact, get the sense that they all still want to be working together. Um, but they also still have now their own sort of lives. Another moment that I think is telling, and sorry, I, I know I keep saying I'm going to finish it up, but Paul says at one, Paul keeps saying, he says it a couple times to John. He says, I can't help but think that as soon as this concert is over, you're going to be off inside of a bag with Yoko somewhere, <laughs> which is a funny comment, right? But I, I think what he's kind of getting at is he's like, in the old days, we would finish a project and then we would, we would stay together, right? We would we would go off on a vacation together. You know, we would do this and this together and we would start writing songs and work on the next one. And, and he's like, that was what the Beatles were. Like, I think for Paul, that is what the Beatles were. And I think earlier when John says, I feel guilty for not being the thing that I know that you want me to be. And I think he, he's kind of referring to that, right? He's like, ah, He's like, I, I'm happy to be in the Beatles. I like being the Beatles. I just don't know if I can, I don't know if I can do what we used to do. At least not right now. I don't, I can't do it. Right. Maybe. And he's even still thinking, you know, John is even after the Paul, Paul makes the announcement, the Paul quits the Beatles announcement. Paul is thinking, you know, there's still, John is saying in an interview, there's, there's, He's like, we're, we're working these things out and maybe it can be a death or maybe it will be a rebirth. And he says, it'll probably be a rebirth, but it ends up being a death and um, the death of the band that is. And so, but, you know, Paul, I think Paul has this idea too of like, you know, what I'm sad about is the fact that after this, this concert is over, it's over and it's going to be over. We'll, we'll get, we'll get back together. There's no, there's no conception in his head that we're breaking up, but you know, it's going to be a few months of off time. And then we're going to have to get, once we get back together, it's going to be about having our sort of personalities fit in with each other again. And I think, I think they all kind of realize it's best. We're, we're good together. We like each other. Um, but it's also coming into conflict with all, all sorts of other things as well. Um, so it's interesting to see how they uh, engage with that and how they, and how they deal with that. But I will say that Paul's and, and, and I'm not the only one who's made this comment. I've seen people make it on other podcasts on this movie that, um, that uh, I have seen. So this is not an original idea, but uh, Paul's feeling of sort of um, sadness that this is all coming to an end was the same feeling that I had as I was watching uh, this movie, which is to say that, you know, I was re recognizing as I was watching it that I don't think Beatles fans will ever get this kind of insight into the band, anything like this ever again. This is, this is kind of it. Um, and so it was very special. And then once it was over, it, as somebody put it, it's kind of a bittersweet moment because this was this amazing thing that we watched, but now it's over. 
Um, and, you know, I'm excited to show it to other people who haven't necessarily seen it before. And that'll be, that'll be exciting too. But it is a kind of bittersweet thing to know that, you know, this is, this is, this is kind of a big thing that we'll never necessarily see the likes of again. Um, so it's, it's a, an extraordinary documentary. Um, I do highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. Um, I really, really, really appreciate all the, um, the comments that uh, I got tonight. This was this was fantastic. It was great engaging with them. Um, maybe there'll be other discussions on this in the past, uh, in the past, or the future, whichever one comes first. And um, we'll. Uh, so this might not be the last conversation about this because there's still a lot of things to say, and I, I'd love to hear other other people's thoughts on it as well. But uh, thank you so much for watching this discussion. It's been a blast. Um, and, uh, if you like what you've seen here, please feel free to uh, subscribe if you haven't subscribed. And, uh, if you, uh, want to leave a comment below, please leave a comment below, like the video. Uh, if you're listening to this on a podcast, please feel free to drop us a rating and, uh, we'll see you in the next one. Thanks so much for watching everybody. Take care. Have a good one. Bye-bye.